From the moment the decision is made to try and start a family until a baby is actually born are too many steps along the way to count. And until someone actually goes through that experience, that journey, it's really impossible to anticipate how it's going to go, what it's going to be like, the ups, the downs, the joys, the disappointments, and what happens when it doesn't go according to quote unquote plan, the way we envision, the way we visualize what it looks like to start a family. When the doubt starts to creep in, how do we handle it? What kind of impact it has? And for the average person who is fortunate enough to not have had to face those adversities, they might not realize how challenging and, and the breadth of the impact that could be when someone or two people, I should say, try to start a family, yet hit roadblocks. And this could totally be connected to many different types of challenges we have in life where we may have a vision of how it's going to go, and yet it doesn't pan out that way. We have a fabulous co-host today who is a mental health professional and at the same time is very open and passionate about the journey she went through in order to start a family. And I am very confident that you will find meaning and inspiration from listening to this episode. As always, please, please, if you have a moment and you appreciate and benefit from this podcast, take a minute, review the podcast, rate the podcast, share the podcast, comment, share on social media, all those things is what really drives us because we just want to create meaningful content to as many people as possible. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter, where we have the chance to talk with interesting people about interesting topics all through the lens of mental health. As you're probably familiar already, my name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I run a group practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. And with great anticipation, as you probably heard in the introduction, this topic, I think, is not talked about enough, and I'm really grateful to have our co-host for today to talk about this. So without further ado, Colleen, can you please introduce yourself to everybody? Sure, and thank you for having me. So my name is Dr. Colleen Reichman, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a group practice in Philadelphia called Wildflower Therapy, and we focus mostly on um, helping folks who are struggling with eating disorders and body image issues. But more recently, we've also been focusing on maternal mental health and the LGBTQ population. I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia with my husband and my two-year-old and then a five-month-old and two very wild dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and you mentioned your children and I have children as well, which is going to really relate to the topic at hand which you can tell me how prevalent it actually is. I mentioned in the introduction that this episode is going to talk about the journey to building a family, starting a family, raising a family. And there are endless amount of, you know, 
potential obstacles and, and challenges. So let's sort of like warm up to it. The idea of building a family, of starting a family, what in your mind are even just some of the motivations? I know there's endless amounts, but what are some of the motivations for someone even wanting to start a family? Yeah, I think there's, like you said, there's so many and it differs so much from person to person, but I hear a lot of people speak about the desire to build like a loving space together and kind of create like a culture unto yourself. And I know a lot of moms will talk about the desire for that. I don't know, almost like a biological drive. Some people experience to have that love between a parent and child. And I, you know, I hear all the jokes about like having people take to take care of you when you're older, which I think is maybe I question that if that's actually going to happen with my children, but um, (laughs) I think it really, it varies so much, but there is like something about love and connection and the desire for that, that just drives people. And I do think a lot of it's almost subconscious, like a subconscious pull for something to create something together. Right. I tend to agree there. There's something innate. There's something like almost built into us. I mean, obviously there's a lot of other, you know, possible, you know, contributing factors to, to why, why people would want to start a family. And I know that you're passionate about this and you're open about this. You know, what could you share about sort of your own journey in, in starting a family? Yeah. So I was very taken aback when the journey did not go as planned. I thought there's so much that you're taught in school growing up. And I kept flashing back to this during these years, but you're taught so much about how to prevent pregnancy and how like, just, it seemed like this thing that happens really quickly and really to anyone. And you're, you know, it's always like a looming fear when you're younger. So it didn't happen for me, like right away. And there are many years of trying that. And then we had to kind of transition into fertility treatment and many years of that not working as well. So we went through the rigmarole. There's kind of a standard protocol that people are swept into once you enter a fertility clinic, at least in like Western medicine fertility. That's like you try um, certain medications and then you move to IUIs. And then if IUIs don't work, which they really don't work for the majority of people, you move to IVF, which is the most invasive. And I went through all of that and then IVF and got very sick from IVF. And so I then had a delay in using the embryos that were created and then had unsuccessful embryo implantations, um, moved fertility clinics. And then finally, it finally worked like the last transfer, I was like, we can't even, I don't even want to use the rest of these embryos. I can't do this anymore to my husband because it had just been years and it took such a toll on my body and mind. Um, but then that transfer where I said, this is the last one. I don't believe it's going to work. And I want to find some other way to pursue happiness after this. That's when it finally worked. And we got Ezra. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing. And even in, in that two minute you know, description, there's plenty in there that, you know, the average person who didn't have to deal with it is not even aware of those challenges or some of those acronyms and what kind of time, the toll it takes, the time and the energy and the mental space and the financial costs. And so we'll hopefully, you know, unpack a lot of that right before we got on, it sort of popped into my head and being that you've had this, you know, lived experience, I'm sure plenty of people listening also 
have had the lived experience. What's your reaction even to the word like infertility? Well, I guess just a personal reaction. It's, it brings up like just instant feelings of sadness and overwhelm. Um, I've always taken an issue with the medical terminology and saying we are going through infertility treatment versus I always wondered like, what about calling it fertility treatment, which I know there's some transition to using that language now, but there's other words like that with this whole process that have, I've always questioned incompetent cervix. I was told that I have that. And I was like, that's a really upsetting term to me. What does that even mean? Uh... That was with my, so my second pregnancy, your cervix is like this really exquisite organ that does all this amazing work. And it's supposed to work like at the end of pregnancy is when it's supposed to start thinning out and you're supposed to be able to have a baby. Mine started to do that very early on, which was a whole ordeal. Cause then I had to go on bed rest and I had to go on pelvic, just so much like trying not to have this baby early went into that, but they called it an incompetent cervix. And I was like, that terminology is so upsetting, like kind of like infertility treatment. Like, I just think words matter and we might want to rethink some of these phrases. Yeah, I agree. That sounds so harsh. Incompetence, like shame on you, cervix. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and infertility. And it literally is just like popped into my head right before we started. It just sounds like almost like all or nothing mm-hmm. as opposed to you, we're trying here. <laughs> we're trying, we're trying to do what's in our control to be able to start a family. That's, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. Infertility. Yeah. It sounds like not fertile, which I guess technically, I mean, I just think I also don't like the language and found it. There are other things like that. Medically, I take a lot of issue with what happened to me. So I, there are other things that I dislike about all the medical terms, but that one, I agree with you. And there's so many things I, I can only really speak for myself. There's so many things that we take for granted when things go smoothly. We're super duper quick to be aware when something is not going as, as planned. And, but when it goes well, we don't necessarily acknowledge it as much. I know I personally try to work on that. I'm sure you do too. If I would have paid it, if I would have paid attention when I was like you know, teenage learning in all the classes and reproduction I would have known this, but having my own children, like if you start to think about all the possible things that can go wrong Mm -hmm. from day one until the baby is born and forget about after the baby's born, just to get to that point, it's like, it's mind boggling how many things could, could go sideways. Right. And how many things have to go right for everything to click into place, which you just don't, you're right. You don't think about it until you're in the process and you're like, this feels like it's never going to happen. Right. So you're not going to give like a, you know, medical lecture now, but you know, for the average person who is not aware and to give like a, a deeper appreciation, can you share a little bit just what some of the obstacles, you know, for everyone who's had an, an easier time starting a family or doesn't have a family and is, is not starting a family, just a little insight. What's it like? Yeah. These are things that I wish I had heard about actually, and like wished people had shared about because there's so many different steps. Once it seems like it's not working. I didn't know that if I was of a certain age, doctors would say like, you know, even if it had been eight months or nine months of trying, they would say, I think they made me try for two years. I think that's changed now. They'll start 
to work with you after a year of trying if you're under 30, but I didn't realize that there was this like age deadline that I had to get to, to then get them to start doing some testing. And I probably could have been more aggressive with that and asked that they do it anyway, but it's just scary advocating for yourself in medical settings. So I didn't, so we waited. And then there's just a remarkable amount of testing for both way more for me, which is hard because the testing is all more invasive for women. But then my husband had to get um, tests done and like sperm analysis. I had no idea what that was. I had no idea that so many scary things could be happening there. And then I had to get certain surgeries, certain like invasive tests where these are other things I didn't advocate for myself for, but tests were like medical students were staring at me while they were happening and they were really painful. I don't even remember the various names and then surgeries to check, to see what was going on. I remember one time I did a full round of like a month of hormones where it's basically like preparing your cervix for what it would look like if you got pregnant. And then instead of anything, instead of like implanting an embryo, they did a surgery where they went in to like check out like how I, my body was responding to that. Had no idea that was a thing. And then, yeah, once you've gotten like procedures and tests and gone through all of this, you try medication. So I tried Clomid is what it's called or Clomid, which is a medication that I didn't realize that it starts like a lot of, it's just very hard on your mood. It's really tough to navigate mood wise. And then once that fails a bunch of times, you try IUIs, which is intrauterine insemination, which is basically like they call it I think people refer to it as like the turkey baster method where you're just putting sperm in a woman, like getting her ready with medication, doing a trigger shot to trigger ovulation and then putting the sperm in. And then that didn't work. Then you're finally bumped into, I call it the varsity team of infertility treatment, which is IVF. And that's like the big, you know, you have to simulate egg production and it's a whole it's basically like a whole course of a a month long course of medication where I was at one point I was, it was eight shots a day, I believe I was doing. And then they do egg retrieval. They take your eggs out, they make embryos, and then you wait five days to see how many embryos make it um, to viability. And I also didn't know that there's like a huge amount of the embryos not making it. I think we got like 18, which is a large number. And I also got what's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And I got really sick from that. My ovaries were like the size of grapefruits when they looked in and that's not, they're not supposed to be that way. Obviously we got 18. And then by day two, they called and said like, we have 12. And then by day three, they were like, we have 10. So you have to just kind of be ready for that to happen each day. And then after that, then you can go into like fresh embryo implantation, like take them and implant them, but we had to wait because I was sick. So then they're frozen. And then you do frozen embryo, like frozen embryo transfers they're called. And another thing I didn't realize is that it's kind of becoming less done to put two in two embryos. Like their fertility doctors are really cracking down on, um, cause it's just, it's considered much less safe, obviously to have multiples, but one was never working for me. So I had to advocate and almost like fight for them to like, cause I did background research where I just felt like that would be better for my particular situation. And so 
when I put two in, that's when I ended up getting Ezra. Um, but I didn't realize that there was so much. And then I had to advocate for, I didn't know that they could genetic, they could do genetic testing on the embryos before freezing them. And they froze mine without telling me that. And so then I had miscarriages along the way. And I said, like, can we unfreeze them and get genetic testing? Because I'm not liking having miscarriage. This is traumatizing every time. So then we did that. Um, so there's just a lot of like, it's a lot of invasive procedures. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of having to kind of like advocate for yourself and making sure you're not just getting swept up in like the intervention vortex, so to speak, like the machine. And it's just, it's trauma, all of it, in my opinion. Right. It sounds, wow. First of all, thank you. <laughs> that that sounds like it'd certainly be traumatic. There's so much exposure and vulnerability and like perpetual state of uncertainty, mm-hmm. like just constant limbo. You don't even know if it's going to work. And, and you mentioned advocacy and you're lucky that you're able to do research and figure some things out. Like if, you, if you don't even know what to advocate for, then you can't advocate for it. Even if you're comfortable <laughs> advocating, it's hard to like speak to a, you know, a medical professional who sounds like they know what they're talking about with some authority and then say, no, well, I want this. That sounds like a real, real marathon. And what helped you, what helped you stay the course? Um, I, I struggled with an eating disorder when I was younger. And one of the things that I kept coming back to like later on was I really want to be able to have, I wanted to be a mom so badly. And so I had this vision and this like dream that I just didn't for many years until that last cycle that I mentioned, I wasn't ready to give up on that. So constantly coming back to that. And then also telling myself, I think if I persist, there are ways that I could have a family one way or another, because we also pursued adoption for a little bit. So reminding myself like, okay, it's time, it's different for me than it looks for a lot of people. But if I and be able to find resources and have support through it and look into different avenues. I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to like make this happen for myself. And then alternatively, I did work to towards that last, before I put, we put Ezra in, I worked to um, consider other ways of like, consider a childless life, like let myself think about what would that look like? And can I achieve happiness that way? Or what are ways that I can find peace in that? What are other ways to get like a mothering need met? And then honestly, just support. I was very private about it at first. And I got a lot of people saying over time, like your life looks perfect. Your life, your social media makes your life look perfect. So finally I made like a very public post about this is what's been happening for the past few years. This is what people should stop asking when we're <laughs> going to have kids. Um, and things don't always appear like they do on the outside. And then after that, I had so many people reaching out and saying, me too, or we just had a failed IVF cycle. Thank you for posting this. And then I got to connect with people through the process then who kind of got it. Yeah, it could be really, really isolating. I can imagine. Because it's almost like this, say some people ask, but even if they don't ask, it's, it's almost like this unspoken sort of expectation that's, uh, you know, what's going on? You're going to, you're going to start a family, right? Yeah. Which I'd never, I think, I don't think anyone should ever ask that ever again to anyone. Cause I just think it's such, 
a triggering, upsetting question for so many people. And people were just, anyone who ever asked me that was coming from a good place. But the amount of times I went home or sat in my office or like went to the bathroom and cried was, it didn't need to be asked so often, you know? Right. And I actually want to get into that, but this, I I just, you know, for people listening, I I just want to highlight as with lots of topics that we talk about, I mean, this is like the perfect example. I mean, at the top of the heap of wanting something so bad and something that's so valuable to someone, so important, so fundamentally a part of their life, and then hitting a certain point where it's like, holy cow, like I can do everything, you know, right quote unquote, and follow all the steps and it's still not in my control. So to me, it's like the perfect example of like hitting this wall or this light bulb, which is really hard to probably sit with that. Wow. I got no control. Oh no. What do I do now? Like, was there a point where like that you mentioned about, well, starting to think about what are other ways to have a family or, okay, start envisioning a life that's, you know, could I have a life that I feel satisfied and, and, and happy without children? Was there like a point where that acceptance started to happen? There was that, like sitting with that um, lack of control though, was, that was almost like new for me. And I remember being so I'm dumbfounded by it for a while. Cause I was like everything, almost everything else in my life I had micromanaged and I had this mindset that if you put enough effort in, you can achieve it. Like even with eating disorder recovery, I felt to some extent, like there was some, like my agency over it. Like I could keep, and though I fell down many times at some point I found my stride and I was like, I do have a little semblance of control over this. That's for me personally. And not saying that everyone feels that way. And then like getting a doctorate, like going through college, like, I just felt like I could, if I put the effort in things would pay off. And then this was the first time in my life where I was like, I could put so much, it's really scary to think about. I could put so much effort into it. I could do everything they tell me to. And it's not within my control at the end of the day. It's like my body. And I had to like surrender to that. And that's when I did start looking for, I found like limited resources on that acceptance of a childless life and, and finding peace with that. And it was helpful psychologically because before it was a lot of like rejection of that idea and like hatred of like, why don't my body work and just, um, not surrendering to it. I am certain that everybody listening can relate to that in some aspect of like realizing, wow, I, I don't have control. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that's probably benefited you in, in many aspects of your life of once, once you start to be able to truly accept how little control, then other things become less maybe overwhelming or, or pressure because we realize how little control we have. Was that, would that be true? Yeah. I, I think about that often with now with my kids and they're like, especially my two-year-old personality wise and behavior wise, I've felt like it's really been helpful to be like, acceptance is key. (laughs) And there's like all the parenting strategies, but at some point you can't control someone's personality. And I love him to death. He came the way he came. And I don't want to try to like force him to be anything that he's not naturally wanting to be. And the letting go of the control and just embracing it all is that is like crucial. I feel like to mental health as 
a parent and then for non-parents in various other areas. Yeah. And if he hasn't taught it to you now, just wait until he becomes a teen because I have some teenagers and they will remind you. (laughs) That's I'm fearful of those years, but I'm I'm trying to mentally prepare for it. You know, we were all teenagers and we were all familiar with that stage, but no matter what, it's a humbling experience, I can say, but it's a good humbling experience. I think it's only makes us better if we approach it to like, okay, let's learn from it. And it's very interesting that point you said about you found very little resources on that type of, well, accepting the loss of something that didn't come, which is like an interesting type of loss. It reminds me, I I think I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but it's worth repeating again. There's this term called ambiguous loss, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with or people are familiar with. It's fascinating to me because it's like it's a loss, but not necessarily a defined loss. And there's so many different examples of someone who may be a parent, you know, walked out. And so like they're around somewhere, but they're not physically here. Or even let's say a parent who's physically or spouse who's physically here, but not here. Maybe they have dementia. Maybe they struggle with uh, substance abuse. And so they're there, but they're not really present. Or 9-11 is a great example where maybe they didn't find somebody. So they're not here, but we don't really know. So I would say that this would fall sort of under it. It's a loss, but it's a loss of something that's not yet here. (laughs) Yeah. And I also felt that way with miscarriage, that there was like someone that hadn't been, especially early on, like earlier miscarriages, and then just infertility in general. I'd always say because of the ambiguous loss element, a really hard factor is that it's not like you get top, I call it top or worse support. Like if somebody dies that you're grieving and it's less, it's not ambiguous, you get people with like Tupperware, like bringing you like dinners and just showing up. And when there's ambiguous loss, unfortunately, that's not normally the case. You don't get Tupperware support. So it's a lot lonelier or it can be. Yeah, totally get that. Can I ask, and if you're comfortable answering, it's got to be an interesting experience being a mental health professional and then also going through this really challenging journey, which like we said, has a great impact on everything, including mental health. Can you speak a little bit about being in that position? Yeah, it was very challenging. My personal boundaries were that I didn't work with anyone who was going through infertility at that point. I just didn't, um, or at least that wasn't a main topic that the person wanted to explore because I just, I was having to manage it 24 seven on my own. So I only started working with people like after kind of all was said and done. And I felt like it's not an open wound anymore, but the amount of like having to navigate doctor's appointments, it's literally a full-time job or was for me on top of having a full-time job. And so trying to figure out how to navigate just even the scheduling or when I could get, I, I had coworkers giving me shots like in between sessions because I was just like, I need help. I can't reach this area. Um, And doing that and then turning it off and going into session was a real practice. Although I will say, I find it really helpful to be able to detach from it. And I'm really good, I think, at turning things off and then focusing on the person. And I just, for me, and I know this is not the case for everyone, but it was very healthy to be able to like put aside this continuous, never ending, 
like traumatic cycle and be like, what's going on in your life? Like, let's focus on you <laughs> for this hour. So it was tough, but it, my job helped me, I think, create boundaries around it almost. Right. Shots in between sessions. That's, I'm just, <laughs> that's wow. You know, that's, that's one thing. And the scheduling is another thing. There's probably even, what I guess are just some other things that you wish that people would know about individuals who are going or couples or partners who are going through this whole process. What do you wish like they knew so that they would appreciate it more? I guess I wish people knew just how traumatizing it is. And I don't use that word lightly. And I think there's research that shows that people who have parents, I think both parties, I believe who have gone through infertility rank it as disturbing or psychologically distressing as a cancer diagnosis um, or like the number one worst period of their lives. Other people have said, so just, I wish people knew that. And I wish people knew it's for most of the time, I believe it's better to move towards the person and at least offer up, like, do you want to talk about this? And I don't have any ideas or solutions. I'm not going to like try to snatch your pain away, but I'm here. And like, I, I'm not going to like pretend this isn't happening in your life. Cause I think that's like so many things that's just always better than ignoring it and making the person feel more lonely and isolated. And I wish people also sort of knew that you are sad, like when you're going through it, or most people are at things like baby showers. I found them sad and was really happy, like at the same time for friends, or I would be like angry when I saw a pregnant belly and um, hoping that person was like excited. You know, it was just like this weird holding of several emotions and it was not all or nothing. Yeah. I wish people knew that. And it's perfectly okay to have both of those coexisting. Like mm-hmm. you could be happy and angry at the same time. You yeah. Sad and, and excited at the same time. I find that a lot, that a lot of people struggle with that. They don't, they don't necessarily give themselves permission to be able to have both of those experiences at the same time. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're not mutually exclusive of one another. Yeah. And that's most things I feel like in our lives, we have more than one emotion and there's this, yeah, there's the idea that that's not normal or like, it can't be that way. And it's almost always that way for so many things. So I felt that way, especially with like baby showers. And when my friends started to get pregnant, I wanted them to know like, yeah, I can be sad. And I'm also like, so happy for you. It's both and it's okay. Right. So speaking of, you know, piggybacking off of of what you said, this is just one of many, many situations where people maybe well-intentioned say really, really unhelpful things. If, If someone didn't know someone who was, they did know that they were dealing with this, or maybe they suspected that they were dealing with this. If they were to ask you like, how could you be a good friend, a supportive family member? Like what's a way to do that? And what should you stay away from? Yeah. It's so reminds me of like when somebody dies and the thing that we say to grieving people, there's just so many things that I felt like people maybe said to soothe their own psychological distress. And also they just want you to feel better. I think the first thing is you can probably bet if someone's going through infertility and they're sharing that, like, you know, this it's at the point where they're talking about it, that they have tried every technique idea, pill, like herbal remedy, 
um, dietary change. They've tried all the things that you're going to bring up. So you probably don't even have to. And I can also assure you they've thought of adoption. So you probably don't have to say, have you thought of adoption? You know, I think that's like the number one. It's just, no, they've tried so many. They've probably tried everything they've been through. Like instead of offering solutions and ideas, just asking them how they're feeling. And I think some of the time, if you haven't gone through it, say like, I can't imagine how hard this must be. And I'm listening, you know, I feel like that's, so life-changing when you're like people responding that way. I went through a really bad uh, experience at the first fertility clinic we were at, where I just felt like we were a number, like being shuffled in and out. And I saw a different doctor every time. And then when I called the one that actually worked for me, I remember I shared with her, like I've had the IVF and then I got ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. I had all these losses since. And I just wonder if you can help, like, would you take us on? The receptionist said, thank you so much for sharing that all with me. Like, I can't even imagine what this has been like. And I started like sobbing. I was like, Oh my God, this person, like it was the littlest thing, but it was so different than what I had gotten. And so different than everyone battering with like solutions. So that I think is like the biggest piece of advice is stay away from solutions and just say like, I'm here. I think a lot of people want, and this is different, I think from person to person, but a lot of people want to foster hope and say like, it's going to happen for you someday. You're going to get your baby. But I kind of felt like that person wasn't letting me sit with the fear, like the all consuming fear of it if it didn't happen and they were scared of it too. So I think sometimes maybe if the person wants to be hopeful, we can lean into that with them. But if they're just saying like, I'm so scared, this is never going to happen. The reality is that could be true. So not snatching that fear away and sitting with them is also, I think, really helpful. Yeah, I think that last one's really powerful. And I think it's so on point that if I'm really uncomfortable for me to acknowledge that there's maybe this is not going to happen is a little overwhelming. So I want to really like build up this hope and we need to, we need to build in this. Yeah, this might not happen. It would be terrible. It would be tragic. It would be very sad. But if we try to pretend that it doesn't, the possibility is not there. And we're like setting ourselves up. I I completely, I completely get it. So stay away from solving. Just be there. Mm -hmm. Is some, for some people it's easier said than done. And also like, don't state the obvious. Like I have this really silly example while you were talking, I thought of it. So in in high school, way back in high school, I had had pretty significant acne for, for a couple of years. And uh, like you're saying, again, it cannot compare at all. But as anyone who has had severe acne, I went through every single product out there, you know, trying to work in it and washing my face. And I like distinctly, vividly remember someone in my high school saying like, oh, wow, you know, it's pretty bad. Maybe you should do something about that. Oh I'm like, uh, so do you think like, I don't have mirrors in my house that I don't know what it looks like? It was yeah. just like so like silly, <laughs> you know, and I laugh, laugh about it, you know, now it's just like, how is that helpful? Exactly. Right. You know? Yeah. And as I, oh my gosh, as a high schooler, it's so upsetting. And so it's almost crazy making when people throw solutions at you or like, have you noticed this when it's so, yeah, there's something about that, that infuriates me at this point. Did it change over time? How you responded? You know, Cause it was, you know, uh, 
number of years going through all this, did it change how you responded to when people like asked or made comments, stuff like that? I eventually did start advocating, like, can you just listen? Or like, could you, I think my mom really wanted to be hopeful, which I found like so heartwarming. But at some point I, I was like, can we not be hopeful for a second? Or am I allowed? Like I did start to kind of advocate for that. Um, Cause early on, you know, what? something people said so often, which I would like nod and smile early on was just go on vacation. It's going to happen for you if you just go on vacation or like, once you stop trying, this is going to happen. And I was like, so agreeable to that. And then I started to get like a little saltier, I would say as time went on, not (laughs) rude per se, but like, I went on a lot of vacations, like through the years, you know, or like, I don't know, just kind of talked back a little bit, which was, I think helpful, I would say. Right. Wow. Do you remember when the first doubt like crept in that this was actually not going to be so simple? I think when the first embryo transfer failed, because I was like, IUIs, you hear a lot. Once you're in the cycle, you hear, you can read about there, there is like a high degree. I think it's maybe only 20% of the time they work. I could be wrong on that. But IVF, I felt like I read all these statistics like 70% of the time. And then when the second one failed after that, I was just like, started to feel like a little crushed. Like this isn't, and then because I felt like crushed, I started to advocate for like more testing and then found out that, well, that's not even really important, but there's, I feel like that led me, the crushed feeling led me to like more advocacy and that was helpful. So it was actually useful to feel so disheartened at some point. Right. I think possibly maybe that speaks to a little bit. We were talking about accepting a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. and there's, at least I think there's a little bit of a difference between accepting and not caring. Mm -hmm. And I have found that some people very quickly transition. Well, I'm going to try to accept this. That means that I have to tell myself that, no, I don't care about it. Mm -hmm. I'm completely indifferent to it. And that's a little bit of a lie to ourselves because we do care about it. I can accept, but also care. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of times in my work with people with family, like there's so much acceptance when it comes to like navigating family of origin, I think for a lot of people it has to happen. And that is difficult to hold like acceptance of this family member does not mean that I like this or that I've like accept what's happened or that I liked what's happened. It's just more means like not railing with all your might against this and feeling like you're drained and it's sucking the soul out of you because you won't accept it. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to hold, I think. I'm curious along your journey, you know, you mentioned family and I'm sure like, you know, and life events, you know, showers and how did it, we can only speak for yourself, but how did it impact you know, relationships, if you had peers or friends or family who were starting families, and, and we know that once that happens, sort of their lives start to revolve around their families, how did, how did you navigate, you know, family events, peers having starting families, holidays, and to add on to that, what would you say to someone who's at the early part of this journey, which like you've learned so much the hard way, (laughs) what kind of guidance would you give them? I don't, I don't think I navigated it well, to be honest. I think that I sat in a lot of loneliness, kept things to myself, attended 
baby showers. I don't know if I would change this, but my younger sister um, got pregnant very shortly after getting married. And I ended up like throwing her baby shower and stuff while I was going through IVF. And um, I don't know how I would change it, but I don't think I set enough boundaries. Like I want you in my life and I'm so happy for you. And I have to kind of like protect my heart in this way maybe not go to some baby showers, like I'm allowed to opt out. I would say that's what I would want people to know about preserving relationships, if you want to, of the people who are like entering this phase in their life. You have to, I think, set boundaries for yourself and talk with them about it, if you're willing, about why you can't go to that Christmas or why you're not going to go like, it was a pumpkin picking. I think I went with somebody and their kids. And I remember just feeling like so for a week, probably a solid week, I was just like very down and like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like what it was like to be there as like the childless person with watching them, their kids pick out pumpkins. So I think trying to advocate also for like meeting up without kids, if you can, or um, I remember also feeling lonely at like coworker lunches when that's all anyone was talking about was their kids and the activities unfortunately there is like a lot of self-advocacy that's involved which sucks but it's also like it will help you if you're able to do it like can we talk about something else or you know this kind of like bums me out right now not to yeah just changing the topic or changing we meet up without kids or I can't go to that baby shower sometimes it's all really important and like valid and knowing that I think is the biggest the biggest piece of advice I can offer Right. I agree. I can imagine it's hard because people, lots of people, nobody wants to be, you know, considered, you know, the downer, mm-hmm. you know, oh, okay. We can't talk about this, but that's not the case. It's, it's real. Yeah. It's real. And people probably don't even realize how much they talk about it and how much the conversation is, is all about, you know, all about their families. I can draw a parallel between that and, and people who are single who have a lot of their peers who are in relationships or are married. And sure, there's a part of them that wants to be in a committed relationship, but they're not. And I feel like the third wheel. Yeah, I think that's so relatable. And so, and you don't, when you're in that position, I know you don't want to be the person to say like, can you stop talking about your relationship? But also I think sometimes it can be a gift to people. Like we get caught in these certain topics, especially I'll just speak for moms. I think we get caught and like, we just talk about our kids and it can be a gift to say like, Hey, what about other, like, just what ideas do you have about life right now? Or like, what else are you struggling with? What aside from your kids or aside from the relationship that can be like, I don't know. I've appreciated it before when people have shifted the narrative a little bit away from what's always like the go-to. That's a really interesting point. Cause when moms and dads, like if the whole identity becomes an extension of their kids, it's sort of like selling yourself short of, well, you're more than, you're more than your child. That's not uh, devaluing your child, but you're, you're more than your child and you can give yourself room to talk about other things and be other things. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I know we only have a couple minutes left. There's so much more we could talk about. Probably don't have time to talk about what people don't even realize the process of adoption or, or fostering. I don't know if you can share like really quickly a little bit about that, that people don't even realize like what it's not as simple as just like, Hey, I want a kid. Can you give me one? 
Yeah, it's it's so complex. And I think people should be very careful before ever bringing up adoption or suggesting it because people have probably already looked into it. And it's a very expensive, complex process that we started. We got to what's called the home study. So first of all, you have to decide, like, do you want to adopt here? Do you want to adopt internationally? And then there's all sorts of like ethical issues that you're unpacking when you're with both. Like when you realize how international, for example, adoption agencies can work and do people know their kids are be like, were these children relinquished? You know, there's just so much that goes into it that you have to understand before you even pick. And then you start paying fees for things like psychological evaluations, physicals, um, home study fees. I uh, have to get like referral letters. I think we had to get five or six referral letters. We had to send pictures of ourselves. We had to change certain things in our home that weren't considered safe for this baby that we might have in four years time. You know, like we had to, wow. you know, we, had to we got like dinged for not posting the appropriate which I found this really funny. I was like, you guys are a little outdated, I think, because they wanted us to propose the appropriate emergency numbers to call should a child choke or should there be like a medical emergency. And I was like, I don't think this is, we have smartphones now, but we had to do that, um, like paste that on our fridge. So more, and- more invasive procedures. And the ironic part is, is that people who have their own children don't do the majority of those things. Yeah. That really annoyed me because I was like, you're saying that, yeah, all these other, I don't know, that I just felt like there was so much and we had to provide our BMI. And then if we were, really, yeah, if you were over a certain BMI for the, for what we were, for the, what we were pursuing, you would get, um, you know, you weren't allowed. And we had to provide like medical status and just a lot of, there was a lot of really like uncomfortable, like, so you're saying someone's not deserving if they have this medical issue or if they're of this BMI, like that seems really unethical almost. Wow. So I know we have to wrap up. I, I think a nice way to maybe put a bow on this, I know we could talk about this for hours, is what's one, maybe two things that, you know, beyond the experience of fertility, I like to always like make meaning of something or what did I learn looking back at all of it? What did you learn from this whole long, arduous experience? I think I learned that one main thing is that hope is active. It's not like a passive emotion and it is research proven that it's important for us psychologically to foster that in certain ways. And that is a process, but it can be done even the mo- in the most arduous of times. Fostering hope is important no matter what, I think. And then I guess as an aside to that, allowing yourself to feel all the feelings about things and finding, you know, finding ways to do that is like survival. <laughs> like you have to allow yourself to feel all the things and all the dichotomous feelings for various situations to get through them. Like there is no numbing at a certain point you will have to feel it and it's important that you do so i think those are my two like main takeaways from the journey beautiful that's perfect i I really appreciate you sharing i'm sure everyone listening appreciates you sharing can you tell if someone wants to learn more about what you do how could they find out more about you 
They could go to my website, which is ColleenReichman.com or my Instagram, which is at Dr. Colleen Reichman. I'm not super active on the other social media forums. I think I, even, I had a Facebook page maybe at this point, but I'm not active on it. Those are like the two main places. And then of course, anyone can feel free to reach out by email at ColleenReichman at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. I'm sure plenty of people will get a lot out of this. Thanks for having me.